Hello, and welcome to the program. My name is Don Johnson. This is episode eight of For All Time. It is Thursday, January 20th, 2022. And I'm just looking at the newspaper here today. And this is a story that I've been wanting to track for a while. I probably have this sitting in a, two or three piles around here, but this is the latest story. So I'm just going to read it. I uh, haven't even taken a look at this yet. But I've wanted to cover this subject, so... Sifting sewage for clues about COVID's future. And there's an inset photo of a man dipping for samples and some delicious looking liquid with a giant green Mario style pipe next to him. It's quite evocative. Water samples being taken in Brooklyn. New York has used wastewater to track COVID levels. This is by Emily Anthus and Sabrina Imbler. As the highly contagious Omicron variant pushes national coronavirus case numbers to record highs and sends hospitals across the country into crisis mode, public health officials are eagerly searching for an indication of how long the surge might last. The clues are emerging from an unlikely source, sewage. People who contract the coronavirus shed the virus in their stool, and the virus levels in local wastewater provide a strong, independent signal of how much is circulating in a given community. The sewage data reveal an Omicron wave that is cresting at different times in different places. According to Biobot Analytics, a company tracking the coronavirus in wastewater in 183 communities across 25 states, viral levels have already begun to decline in many big cities, but are still rising in smaller communities. In the Boston area, for instance, Biobot's data suggests that the wastewater viral load has been falling since early January, consistent with other data suggesting that the virus may have peaked... And they're going to make us flip all the way to A18. The virus may have already peaked there. The virus appears to be waning in New York City wastewater too, according to data shared by scientists in the region. A variety of wastewater surveillance efforts in the United States show that viral loads have also started to decline in Denver, San Diego, St. Paul, Minnesota, and elsewhere. Although there are lags between the wastewater samples uh, when the wastewater samples are collected and when the results are publicly available. The most recent data suggests that the virus may not have peaked yet in parts of Ohio, Utah, Florida, and wide swaths of rural Missouri. Quote, wastewater surveillance is a really powerful tool, and we're seeing a really good example of that with Omicron said Amy Kirby, the program lead for the National Wastewater Surveillance System, which Centers for Disease Control and Prevention established in the fall of 2020. It's not just an early warning sign, but it's also helpful to monitor for the full trajectory of a surge. Over the course of the pandemic, scientists, health officials, and biotech companies have been building wastewater surveillance systems that they hoped would spot new variants, track the spread of the virus, and provide advance notice of coming surges. It's a type of data that we are all creating naturally, organically, when we're using the restroom, uh, was quoted Mariana Mattis, the chief executive and co-founder of Biobot Analytics. The CDC, which is now funding sewage surveillance efforts in 43 states, cities, and territories, plans to add wastewater data to its online COVID 
data tracker within the next few weeks, Dr. Kirby said, and the agency is in the process of adding about 500 testing sites across the country to its surveillance system. Wastewater surveillance is already informing local pandemic responses. City officials are using it to funnel resources into neighborhoods where the virus is surging, and hospitals are using it to make life-or-death decisions about which treatments to administer. But these efforts remain spotty and ad hoc, confined to places where good data is easily accessible and local officials in are interested in using it. The United States needs to do more to expand and coordinate these efforts to make more data. Okay, experts said, and we are editorializing. There is still no centralized public dashboard where all the nation's wastewater data is collected and displayed. The Netherlands, by contrast, has a national wastewater surveillance system that covers nearly all of the country's residents. The public-facing dashboard is updated daily. I absolutely believe the U.S. is behind, Dr. Mattis said. Netherlands thrown some shade. Snooping on sewage. Houston, which has a wastewater surveillance program since the summer of 2020, is reaping the benefits of snooping on sewage. The program is run by Lauren Hopkins, chief environmental science officer for the city's health department. It samples 39 wastewater treatment plants as well as nursing homes, jails, and other communal spaces to measure the viral load across the city every Tuesday. Dr. Hopkins consults weekly with wastewater screeners to determine where the city should funnel resources. When officials from the Houston program noticed that the sewage in one zip code, a largely Hispanic neighborhood, had unusually high levels of the virus week after week, they distributed testing and cleaning supplies and multilingual education materials of the virus, about the virus and vaccines. Uh, the team set up regular coronavirus testing in the Holy Ghost Catholic Church, which the priest promoted. Soon, the area's wastewater dropped out of the high-priority list. Houston is the example of how incredibly powerful this is, Dr. Hopkins said. Some jurisdictions are also analyzing wastewater samples to determine the relative proportion of Omicron, Delta, and other variants. This is crucial information for doctors when deciding how best to allocate monoclonal antibodies, which can prevent people at high risk for COVID-19 from being hospitalized. Two of the three authorized monoclonal antibody treatments do not appear to work against Omicron. The one that does, uh, Soto... Sotorivim, nope, gonna try it, Sotravimab, nope, Sotravimab, Sotravimab, you go look it up and take a look, it is, you tell me how you do. It is in very short supply. At the Hannibal Regional Hospital in Missouri, clinicians were trying to save their scarce Sotariv Mab, until the Omicron wave arrived in the region. After local wastewater data suggested that Omicron was responsible for most of the area's infections, they switched from the other treatments to Sotorovimab. Mm -hmm. We don't have the capability to do gene sequencing in real time to know which variants are prevalent, Jessica Gilmore, who directs the hospital's pharmacy department, said. So the best we have is the sewer shed data to help us guide our decision making. Knowing when the peak has passed can be useful too. In recent weeks, Boston's Children's Hospital has been limiting uh, or postponing some non-emergency procedures, said Dr. Vincent Cheng, 
the hospital's chief medical officer. Now that Omicron appears to be in retreat in Boston, staff members are contemplating when they might be able to reschedule these procedures. Coming into the hospital with your child is already stressful enough, he said. Coming, getting a date, and then having to have it canceled is even worse. Because COVID hospitalizations lag behind cases, the crush is unlikely to set it up immediately. But if the wastewater data looks encouraging, Boston Children's Hospital may begin, may begin scheduling more elective procedures for the second half of February, Dr. Sheng said. Quote, I love looking at the wastewater data said no one prior to the COVID pandemic, he said. But here we are. The man makes fun of his own quote. I love it. Uh, it's been such a success. Although wastewater surveillance is increasingly common, integrated strategic public health responses, like the one that unfolded in Houston, remain rare. I'm not aware of any other city that's doing it, Dr. Hopkins said, in city, uh, of cities in Texas. I'd imagine they're going to try, you know, because it's been such a success. Very hopeful. Of the 43 jurisdictions that the CDC is funding to collect wastewater data, just 13 have fully implemented their systems, in quotes, that's a definition, I suppose, in their system, and are routinely submitting data to the agency, Dr. Kirby said. Some places collect wastewater only weekly, and there's typically a lag for at least several days before the results are available, making it harder to track a fast-moving variant in real time. Our turnaround time is never quick enough, Dr. Kirby acknowledged. And although scientists have been monitoring for New York City's wastewater since June 2020 and providing data to the city weekly, the city has not made it publicly available. Michael Lanza, the spokesman for New York City's Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, said that the wastewater data had been consistent with the city's testing data. While useful in confirming what we're seeing around the city, wastewater surveillance data lacks the precision of and generally lacks lags behind data provided through our primary surveillance systems, he said in an email. Hmm. Interesting attitude. Even when the data is available, officials have to figure out how to act on it. After Omicron emerged, wastewater surveillance quickly revealed that the variant was present in multiple cities but did not yet appear to be widespread, said Samuel Scarapino, the managing director of pathogen surveillance at the Rockefeller Foundation, which funds wastewater surveillance projects around the world and coordinates the U.S. Wastewater Action Group. Instead of banning travel from South Africa and elsewhere, the federal government should have focused on public health measures that might have helped flatten the curve, Dr. Scarpino said. Quote, the U.S. federal government didn't move fast enough, he said. We could have had at least two more weeks to get the testing capacities up to get messaging out around vaccination and masking. In the meantime, public health officials have exhausted healthcare workers who live in localities where the peak seems to have passed and can take some solace in the wastewater data. Looking at that data, it really says, boy, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, Dr. Shang said. Once again, exceedingly optimistic, this man. Thank you to Dr. Shang for uh, helping educate us on this situation, and also the writers of this article in the New York Times. Hmm. All right, so, interesting.
Here's a little uh, something for anyone who uh, has enjoyed the jinx. New York prosecutors say they're confident that Durst killed wife by Charles V. Bagley. Um, pause the podcast right now and go watch a six-part documentary, I believe, The Jinx on HBO, where, spoiler alert, um, there's a very satisfactory ending. <laughs> Uh, the many mysterious surround uh, the many mysteries surrounding Robert A. Durst, the one-time real estate scion who died last week while in custody. Oh, also that's the end of the story as well. While in custody following his murder conviction in California, started with his first wife who vanished from a cottage in a small town in Westchester County, New York, in 1982. Kathy McCormick Durst's dis- disappearance would be one of the country's would become one of the country's most notorious cold cases after multiple investigations by various agencies failed to uncover what had happened. It was nearly four decades before Mr. Durst was finally charged in November with their murder. Mr. Durst's death on January 10th scuttled chances that a trial would offer a full accounting of the circumstances surrounding uh, Ms. Durst's disappearance and presumed death. But on Wednesday, Miriam E. Roca, the Westchester District Attorney, released a report on the investigation that led to Mr. Durst's indictment. The 12-page report shed little new light on the exact circumstances of Mr. Durst's death. I wonder if it involved a significant amount of burping. It is silent on the last moments of her life. However, Mr. Durst was responsible for her death and exactly where he, where she died. Her body was never found. Uh, Ms. Roca said that of her that her office was finally able to indict Mr. Durst because of new evidence and the many damaging admissions that he made in the 2015 documentary, The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, and during a lengthy trial last year in Los Angeles in which Mr. Durst was (laughs) convicted of murdering another woman. I shouldn't laugh, but I'm laughing at what the previous sentence where he very much um, admits to some things. Um... Right, and he was convicted last year of murdering another woman, his confidant, Susan Berman. But in an interview, Ms. Roca acknowledged that uh, that the investigation indictment of Mr. Durst was a challenging circumstantial case. This isn't a case where we can say a minute by minute what happened, she said, but we can say with confidence that he killed her in Westchester. To get there, Ms. Roca said, she put together a cold case squad headed by the prosecutor Laura Murphy, whose first task was to review the Durst case. She also brought in Joseph Becerra, the state police investigator who reopened the Durst case in 1999. Ms. Roca said the report outlining the case against Mr. Durst was released in the interest of transparency. Sharing facts with the public where possible is the best way to enhance the public trust in our justice system, as Roca said. She also noted that the allegations of... All I'm going to say is that it's a kind of a slam dunk when you're prosecuting someone who's literally admitted on video in multiple contexts that he's committed crimes. Uh, You know, it's in a documentary that's available on HBO to stream and has for the last five years. (laughs) That's all I'm going to say. Yeah... So it goes on, but uh, let's see. Mr. Durst told the filmmakers that he had lied to police about his whereabouts when Kathy disappeared and the couple's relationship became a series of arguments, fighting, and slapping. The filmmakers also turned up evidence tying Mr. Durst to the murder of Ms. Berman. Um, Some of the biggest breakthroughs came after Mr. Durst agreed to more than 20 hours of interviews uh, for the documentary and... 
Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. Two weeks after being sentenced to life in prison for Mrs. For Ms. Berman's killing, Mr. Durst was indicted on November 1st by the Westchester District Attorney's Office in the secondary murder of Kathy Durst. That's kind of the end of his story. Um, there's a man that basically went down for three individual murders. Um, go watch that documentary if you haven't. Very enlightening on uh, many different angles of both criminal investigations and uh, the game that criminals with a profile will play with the rest of the world. Here we go. Maxwell's bid for a new trial faces a hurdle by uh, Benjamin Weiser. The judge was questioning potential jurors for the Ghislaine Maxwell sex trafficking trial when she asked a 35-year-old Manhattan man, identified as Juror 50, whether he had any doubt about his ability to be fair to both sides. No, Juror 50 replied. The judge pressed him. Did he have any reason to think he could not be impartial? I do not, replied the man, who ended up as a member of the jury that convicted Ms. Maxwell on five of the six counts she faced. But revelations in the news media that Juror 50 and a second juror each disclosed personal histories of childhood sexual abuse to their fellow jurors during the deliberations have clouded the verdict and led to a flurry of new court filings focused on jury impartiality. Ms. Maxwell's lawyers, citing Juror 50's comments in the news media, have said they will seek a new trial. The judge, Allison J. Nathan of Federal District Court, has asked both sides for their views on whether a court inquiry is appropriate, and if so, what its nature should be. In trying to assess the impact of the jury room discussions that Juror 50 described in the news media, and potentially those of the second juror as well, the judge is likely to be blocked by one of the legal system's most stringent and time-honored rules. She cannot ask the jurors what happened during their deliberations, and the jurors are not allowed to tell her. Even though the jurors may speak to the news media or write about their experiences, the Supreme Court has held that the jurors' statements or testimony about their inner workings of deliberations cannot be used by lawyers challenging a verdict or by a judge deciding whether to overturn it. The only exception the Supreme Court has said is where overt statements during deliberation show a juror was motivated by racial animus in voting to convict. Quote, the court has been extraordinarily protective of the jury as a black box, said Richard L. Jolly, a law professor at Southwestern Law School in Los Angeles who has written extensively about the jury system. He continues, we really don't want a court to scrutinize every jury's considerations, he said. We don't want the court to dig in and start policing how a jury is reaching its verdict. No, we don't want that. Not at all. These 12 people show up, they do their job, they go home, he added. The jurors in the widely matched Maxwell trial, while the watched Maxwell trial, heard a testimony over three weeks showing that Ms. Maxwell had helped the disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein entice, groom, and sexually abuse teenage girls. The jurors, whose names were not made public by the court, deliberated for five full days. They were sent out for a series of notes with questions for the judge and requests for copies of transcripts before announcing their verdict on December 29th. A few days later, Jury 50 uh, revealed in an Instagram post that he had participated as a juror in the trial. The post has since been taken down. In an interview with several news outlets, Juror 50 said he was proud of the verdict 
and that he had found four women who had testified about being childhood victims of Ms. Maxwell to be credible. The four women. Pardon me. He also revealed during deliberations he had disclosed that he had been sexually abused as a child and had not revealed that abuse until years later. He had also explained to fellow jurors that he could not remember every detail of his abuse, but that did not mean it had not occurred, which would go, this is my editorializing here, which would go to, in the legal context, it would give meat for lawyers to say that uh, there's room for prejudice that was unavailable for them to pick apart during the jury selection process. That's essentially what's happening here. Um, the jury room went silent, in quotes, as he, the, he told his story. Juror 50 said in an interview with DailyMail.com. A second juror in an interview with the New York Times also described being sexually abused as a child and discussing that experience with the during jury and described discussing that experience during jury deliberations. The juror who also requested anonymity said the disclosure appeared to help influence the jury's discussions. <laughs> you don't you don't that legally speaking that's a gray area. But uh it's also unexpected and not something you typically want to be surprised by. Despite the broad prohibition on delving into the jury's deliberations, Judge Nathan could examine how the two jurors responded to detailed questionnaires that hundreds of prospective jurors filled out in the weeks before trial. The parties relied on the responses to decide whether to seek or to seek to exclude jurors for various reasons like bias which is essentially what they're accusing in this situation. Question 48 asked whether the potential juror had ever been a victim of sexual harassment, sexual abuse, or sexual assault, or had received unwanted sexual advances, and if so, whether that would affect their ability to serve fairly and impartially in the trial. Benjamin Bratman, a prominent defense lawyer in New York with no involvement in the Maxwell case, said, quote, a lot will depend on whether or not the juror fought lied on their questionnaire when answering these specific questions, end quote. Indeed, he said, in a case like Ms. Maxwell's, perhaps the most important question to be asked of prospective jurors was whether they had a history of sexual abuse. Quote, it's not just I was the victim of a crime, Mr. Brofman said, but I was a victim of the same crime that the defendant is being accused of committing. A legal distinction of debatable relevance. It's not just, I was the victim of a crime, Mr. Brotman said, but I was a victim of the same crime that the defendant is being accused of committing, and truly doesn't... Mm. Well, there's a lot to debate there. Although Ms. Maxwell was not specifically charged with sexual abuse, such crimes by Mr. Epstein were at the center of the case. Juror 50 told Reuters that he, quote, flew through the questionnaire and did not recall being asked about his personal experiences with sexual abuse. He said... He would have answered such questions honestly, Reuters reported. It is not known how the second juror filled out the questionnaire. Both Juror 50 and the second juror were called for a second round of jury selection, where Judge Nathan, drawing in part on the responses in, to the questionnaire, conducted questioning known as voir dire. 
Neither of the jurors was asked whether they had been abused sexually or volunteered that they had been during the voir dire. Legal experts said Judge Nathan will have to determine whether the defense, had it known of the two jurors' histories, could have successfully challenged them, quote, for cause because they could not be impartial. Moira Penza, a former federal prosecutor in Brooklyn, said it would not be difficult for Judge Nathan not to order a new trial if any juror intentionally lied. It would be difficult for her not to order it. If, on the other hand, quote, the juror says that this was a mistake, that he missed the question, that he misunderstood the question, Ms. Penza said, then you could have an inquiry from Judge Nathan about whether that juror was still fair and impartial. Quote, was that juror still willing to follow the court's instructions? Was that juror still going in with an open mind, said Ms. Penza, who helped win the 2019 racketeering conviction of Keith Rainieri, the Nixium sex cult leader. All right. That's experience. There's another documentary for you to go watch. Look up uh, The Vow. Look up... uh, Go on Hulu and type in Nixium. What was that one called? Look that up, though. Oh, wow. There you go. There's something for the weekend. Um, let's see. Stephen Gillers, I'm just going to say, who teaches legal ethics at New York University School of Law, said that if either juror had failed to reveal their abuse history in the questionnaire, Judge Nathan would want to know to answer the would want to know the answer to the question that quote she would have asked had the jurors filled out the questionnaires accurately. If it was intentional, that counts against the juror. That raises suspicion, Professor Giller said. If it was a mistake or overlooked, then that counts in favor of crediting the juror if he now says it didn't affect my deliberation at all. While Judge Nathan considers what to do in the Maxwell case, the revelations appear to have prompted at least one other judge in the same court to underline the importance of filing out a jury questionnaire accurately. Last week... Judge Jesse M. Furman was addressing a group of potential jurors being screened for another high-profile trial of the lawyer Michael Avenatti, who you may remember was once lawyer for Stormy Daniels during uh, that whole 2016-2017 situation, Um, who has pleaded not guilty to charges. He stole $300,000 from the pornographic film actor Stormy Daniels, who I actually um, happen to be in the same airport as uh, right before New Year's Eve, what was that, 2018, 2017, something like that. That was wild. Standing there, nobody even recognized her. Nobody even said anything to her. She was standing there with like a security guard or two going to some, she had some scheduled event, and that's how I confirmed that it was truly her, and I wasn't just, like, wigging out, like, recognizing a false celebrity, like, she had a scheduled event there. And then she tweeted that she was, like, going to Key West for the weekend, or, I don't know, Florida, or something like that. Context put it together. It was definitely her. Um, anyway. I am incapable of, uh, failing to mention when I've spotted someone famous popular affliction soon he returned to the topic you must answer each and every question truthfully and completely he stressed then after the group was sworn in he became emphatic emphatic because i cannot say it too many times let me repeat he started in again 
you must answer each and every question truthfully and completely. So, this case has apparently uh, reminded federal court judges who I, I are appointed, by the way, that uh, how, how the legal system works, which I, I assume they should be extremely well aware of. Um, uh, but I don't know where the gray area is here for anyone to do anything specifically other than at this point. It looks like there's just a kind of a railroad for Judge Nathan to uh, reset this thing over something very minor that could be uh, debatably intentional or, or not. Um, who's to say? I'm not involved in any of this. So, Fun observation is all. And... Uh, yeah, let's see. There's one more thing I just wanted to look at. Let's see. All right. Here we go. Five G versus an aviation device invented in the 1920s, by Stephen Gandel. This is from Today's Times. A technological innovation that helped pilots fly fighter jets during World War II is now at the heart of a dispute between airlines and AT&T and Verizon over 5G, an innovative service meant to speed up mobile devices. The clash has been years in the making and has come to a head in the last few weeks. AT&T and Verizon have agreed on Tuesday to restrict 5G near airports after airlines warned that potential interference from it could cause a crucial device on planes to malfunction and force them to cancel flights. Even with the airport restriction, a number of international airlines on Tuesday canceled flights to the United States, though some of those flights were restored. The instrument in question is a radio altimeter. It was first developed in the 1920s, but still plays a crucial role in planes, helping pilots determine a jet's altitude and its distance from other objects. In some planes, altimeter readings are fed directly into automated systems that can act without input from pilots. As aviation experts describe it, the 5G system used by AT&T and Verizon works on similar frequencies to the one used by altimeters. Yes, it's, it's basically... Readings and sen that sensors in the air in most modern airplanes take almost all modern airplanes, especially with regards to passenger airline jets. Um, their autopilot systems are essentially on rails. You set the direction and the altitude you want to go. I mean, I, I fly it all the time in Flight Simulator um, in many different planes. You set essentially the direction, altitude, or a navigational route and the altitude, you know, the flight level you want to fly at, and it basically goes. And once you take off a plane, you get up and you're in the right spot and you can just slam on the button and go. And uh, plane sensors and systems are numerous and redundant and uh, include radio altimeters, which, um, as this quote will continue, you do not want to be on... Let me flip the B3 here. You do not want to be on planes landing without the altimeter working, said... <laughs> you don't. You do not want to be on planes landing without the altimeter working, said Diana 
Forgot Roth, a de former department secretary of the Department of Transportation in charge of researching new technologies. She added that aviation regulators were correct in raising concerns about 5G and were taking appropriate steps to ensure safety. But telecommunications experts say that there is little or no risk to altimeters from 5G and that the aviation business <laughs> had years to prepare for what little risk there is. Hmm. Hmm. Who's right? The science is pretty clear. It is hard to repeal the laws of physics, Tom Wheeler, a former chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, wrote in a piece for the Brookings Institution in November. The Brookings Institution in November. In which he noted that the FCC engineers had found no real cause for concern. Now, I, this is, before I continue in the article, this is where I propose, and if you go, you can see on my Twitter feed, you, I propose that this is actually, and other people have suggested perhaps more jokingly, but I actually do believe that this is essentially like a, a proxy war between the FAA and the FCC, between those organizations, those government agencies, and their patrons. Uh, we all know that it's a revolving door, both of those agencies, between the public and private institutions, and uh, I'm fairly certain that the situation here is essentially like the corporations behind each one are colliding and fighting over bandwidth, if not for now, they're fighting over the potential future of bandwidth because these wars aren't fought very often. The last time that this war was fought was around the... Uh, the last time a bandwidth war was fought was really, let's see, maybe in the 3G era or before that. I think like CDMA and TDMA hit something. There was some, some wall that it was bouncing up against. Either way... Cell phones that were, were the last time that this is bouncing up again, and it's cell phones that are doing it again. Now, will it affect airplanes? Ultimately, I guarantee a workaround will be found. But it's it's funny to me to see uh, the context around the story being completely thrown aside, and purely uh, we're just basically having a uh, a scientific discussion. I don't know. But all I know is there's a lot of things that will be going through airwaves in the next 20 years that aren't currently, you know, traveling through the airwaves right now. And those people in the regulatory positions who are on those revolving door boards and have been in and out of public and private uh, experience know what those things are, the kind of bandwidth that they're going to need, the kind of things that satellite internet, for example, are going to require and other types of uh, future broadcasts. And they need to get in there and make sure those foundations for those doors uh, are firmly cemented and the doors are wide open for when the time comes to move into them and fill those spaces. That's what I believe is happening. But we'll continue arguing about the planes. What are aviation safety experts worried about? The altimeter was patented by Lloyd Eppenschneid, a prolific inventor who spent more than 40 years working for Bell Labs. In calibrated, excuse me, Bell Labs, the celebrated research arm of AT&T. The device functions by sending out radio waves to determine a plane's location relative to the ground and other objects. Basically, it sends out a little sound wave that the human ear can't hear, but the radar can hear. It takes a certain amount of time to hit the ground or the surface below it, water maybe. Bounce back, hit the little device. The amount of time it calculates your altitude. It's pretty much that simple. If an altimeter's waves don't bounce back because of 5G interference or can't be distinguished from other nearby waves, the altimeter could give the wrong reading or not function at all, said Peter Lemmy, a former Boeing engineer who spent 16 years at the company designing safety systems that relied on altimeters. 
A malfunctioning altimeter, for example, could prompt a plane's computers to warn pilots about phantom obstacles or prevent systems from warning pilots of real threats. The Helicopter Association International held a webinar last week for its members on 5G interference. One of the panelists was Seth Frick, a radar system engineer at Honeywell Aerospace who makes altimeters for many aircraft, including its own military helicopters. Mr. Frick said that Honeywell had found a range of errors from altimeters, quote, getting noisy to providing no reading, <laughs> which is great in the company's testing for 5G interference. Wow, that's a that's the best reading of all. You're like, wow, I'm at 3,700. Wait, what? Where am I? It's foggy. And there's a mountain range nearby. Oh, good thing I can see that 5G tower, but... And then, uh, and then uh, you know, the Swiss cheese, you fall through all the holes. <laughs> I, I don't know how there's any cases where we can say there's absolutely no interference. Pilots tend to rely on altimeters when visibility is limited, say for fog. <laughs> I love it. But they're not used in most landings. It's true which is why uh, some wireless experts have dismissed the aviation industry's concerns as hyperbolic. Although it is fun to be hyperbolic, we have to admit. In addition, wireless experts have said that most modern altimeters should be able to filter out interference. Quote, I see why this is a greater concern, said Tim Farrar, a wireless industry consultant who has looked at the issue but I am still not convinced you will see any interference. Could a malfunctioning altimeter cause other problems? One of aviation security experts' biggest concerns is that an altimeter malfunctioning because of interference could set off a chain of mistakes by the automated systems and by pilots. Such errors played an important role in the two fatal accidents involving the Boeing 737 MAX that led regulators in 2019 to ground the plane for nearly two years. Quote, this is something that everyone will be more cautious about. The impact on aircraft with a high degree of automation. Because of the problems automated systems cause in the 737 MAX, Mr. Ferraro said. That goes back to talking about how essentially the sensors are what control a plane in, in autopilot. And if the data being relayed to the sensors, or if the collection method of the sensors is being somehow tricked or being given false information or a sensor is broken and giving inaccurate data that can it's hardwired essentially to the autopilot and the autopilot makes decisions for you about all kinds of things banking directions uh engine power all kinds of things and any of those minor situations can be remedied by a pilot but once again uh, aviation accidents usually only occur when several errors occur at the same time. So you mix in a co-pilot who's maybe not paying attention, a pilot who wasn't expecting something to happen, fog, unfortunate climate situations that may have had distracted a little bit more of their attention than they could spread, and then a situation occurs. Even just a little bit of a variation is enough for let's say those on the aviation caution side of this, the people who are the most concerned, even a little bit can contribute to a scenario that can allow an aviation accident to occur, which is what they're trying to avoid. Why weren't these 
concerns addressed earlier. AT&T and Verizon is a similar temporarily limit their two... Instead, the FCC is relying on its own research that cleared 5G of safety concerns, went ahead with a planned auction, and carriers bid more than $80 billion to use that portion of the wireless spectrum for 5G. Before that, it basically just goes on to say they uh, ignored any uh, procedures that they were supposed to carry out. They just, their restriction for themselves, let's see, was to limit uh, the 5G network towers within two miles of airports. Mr. Fructok Roth, who teaches transportation economics at George Washington University, said that to fully resolve the issue, each plane model had to be tested. Can't say whether the new ones are going to work and the older ones are not going to work, she said. In some cases, it's the opposite. The FAA says it already cleared 62% of the commercial fleet in the United States. Wow, well, there you go, 62%. That's all planes. The airline industry has been working on new standards for radio altimeters that would address the 5G interference and other issues, but those standards are not scheduled to be released until October and would only apply to new altimeters. The FAA has approved five models of altimeters as 5G compliant in the past week, but the approvals are based on the combination of altimeter and plane model and no altimeters have ever been approved for 787s. I would also add that there are hundreds of planes in manufacture and planes from the 50s still fly today. They, you know, rebuild them and refix them, but I mean, you know, Cessna 152s are out there flying and have been since the 50s and people love to fly them today. Great training aircraft, so 172s, existence since the 70s. Still flown, people love them, nothing wrong with them, people fly them today. So, yes, most people flying today, enthusiast pilots or whatever, have, you know, some more up-to-date technology, but it's not cheap. And there are plenty of planes flying out there in rural regions and communities, especially bush piles or God knows what. One time, at some point, a plane that isn't commonly in a scenario where there could be an issue if a plane like that ends up in a scenario where there could be an issue, we don't know what happens. And that's not a good thing to happen in a plane. Typically, you'll want to know all the situations that can happen and what to do in all those scenarios. It's basically the essence of pilot training. So, you know, it's not just take us off, takeoffs and landings. It's what to do if, I don't know, the engine's on fire or you have a fuel leak or an oil leak or X, you know, scenario that can occur. Um, a more immediate solution would be to make permanent the temporary limits the AT&T and Verizon have placed in their 5G networks near airports, or the companies could reduce the strengths of 5G signals near airports or redirect antennas in ways that limit or eliminate their impact on planes. Now, I say, how can that, any of that be predicted without knowledge, proper testing, um, I don't know, time to pass by to know what the potential issues could be? I mean, it doesn't have to be a critical error, you know, if a plane flies through the uh, 5G situation and just explodes or falls to the ground there's so much to be discussed there and uh let's see end quote the assumptions are for how altimeters and 5g towers are going to interact with the real world and from each side are radically different he said oh also the two camps (laughs) i'll give you this last paragraph too Any solution will have to be negotiated between the airlines and the FAA on one side and wireless companies and the FCC on the other. There you go. That's exactly what I was talking about at the beginning before all of this. You're talking about basically corporate sponsors of the FAA and the corporate sponsors of the FCC duking it out over rights of bandwidth. 
uh, wireless bandwidth through the air. Everything from your Wi-Fi to your cell phone to your, I don't know, wireless toaster, wireless fridge, wireless anything, has to essentially fight for a little slice of the bandwidth spectrum. Everything from airplanes to the sun broadcasts a radio frequency, and nothing can really overlap if you want it to work properly. So you have to work within those confines, which changes even throughout the time of day. Um, Radio signals should... I mean, very weak radio, radio signals are very visibly weaker with the, the rising of the sun, but it's funny to me to think that most people don't even have an idea that the sun could potentially affect wireless signals. Um, I think about it all the time because I'm crazy, but that's just me. Uh, here's a little side story to, to, to wrap it up. Flight cancellations decline after cellular giants relent. This is by Niraj Chokshi. Airlines avoided mass flight cancellations after uh, on Wednesday morning after an 11th-hour decision by AT&T to, and Verizon to restrict a new 5G cellular service near airports. As of early afternoon, more than 260 flights had been canceled in the United States, according to FlightAware, an aviation data firm. That's 260 flights were canceled over this fight, essentially. Just four days earlier, the airlines had canceled 470 flights, the best day for flight cancellations in a month. Airlines had warned this week that the major expansion of 5G service scheduled for Wednesday would disrupt passenger and cargo flights, causing chaos. The company said the new service could interfere with some radio altimeters, devices that, among other things, determine a plane's altitude, posing a safety risk, especially in bad weather. The the so-called C-band frequencies used by 5G are closer to the portion of airwaves used by altimeters than the frequencies used by earlier generations of cellular service, which were also an issue to other devices. On Wednesday, the Federal Aviation Administration expanded the list of planes and altimeters approved to land in low visibility conditions in airports where 5G service is deployed. Now an estimated 62% of the U.S. commercial fleet can land safely under those conditions, the agency said. Even as wireless carriers and federal officials hashed out a compromise Tuesday, several international airlines said they would cancel or adjust flights to the United States, but many of those companies reinstated flights by Wednesday morning. The 5G expansion had already been delayed twice over aviation safety concerns, first from late December to earlier to early January, and then on again this week. On Tuesday, the wireless companies relented again and said they would not activate the new service within two miles of some runways. President Biden said that the change would avoid, quote, potentially devastating disruptions, end quote, while allowing more than 90% of the expansion to proceed as planned. There you go. Federal officials will continue to work with wireless companies, airlines, and aviation manufacturers to find a, quote, permanent workable solution, end quote. He at. So that's it. That's the beginning and the end, and now we don't have to freak out about it anymore. Now we know that 62% of planes are fine and 90% of planes are whatever. Right? There you go. Problem solved. Nothing to talk about. Except this. I'm going to revisit a little bit of uh, a friend, Cyrus Teed. Read a little bit from uh, Lynn Milner's book, The Allure of Immortality. It's a modern book written in uh, 2015, or at least published in 2015. 
about Cyrus T. And I bet you I can open up to virtually any page on this book and tell you a little bit about Cyrus Teed that you're going to love. There we go. Chapter 7. The Homesteader. There we go. On one April day in Florida in 1882, the same year Teed's mop business failed, he moved to Syracuse to practice medical electricity. A little boy named Elwin Damocler stood on a dock in Punta Rasa. Quote, this is the end of the world. Jump right off, read the sign at the south end of the pier. The Damocler farm, excuse me, the Damocler family, Gustav, his wife, and four children, all under the age of eight, had just arrived from Missouri to homestead some land. If one did jump off the dock, it was into very deep water, which made Puntarassa, level point, an excellent port, and a bustling one. Cattle drovers rounded up cows all over the state and herded them there until the end of the cattle trail where the animals were led into chutes and loaded onto barges, as many as 200 per trip, thousands each year, headed for Key West and then Cuba, where the demand for beef seemed endless. The town was rough, as one county brochure notes, a constant bedlam of sounds from bellowing cows, the crackling of cow whips, the barking of cow dogs, the cries of the cowmen, an occasional gunshot, shrieks from the ship's horns and the clatter of hooves as the cows were funneled through the chutes and onto the ships. Card games and other gambling activities went on in the barracks until late at night, and an occasional fight broke out. When Gustav Damocler and his family arrived, Punterassa was raucous. There was a couple of hotels, if you could call them that, and bars, a telegraph office, the southernmost in the United States. The end of the world sign wasn't far off. Homesteaders, like the Damoclers, were trickling into the area, attracted by the state's new land, much of which was literally new, and drained out of, oh, drained to get Florida out of debt. Basically, they wanted to develop new land so they could sell more land. Before the drainage, the land south of Ponderasa was, quote, one vast plain of scrub cypress and stunted pine. A military captain in the Seminole War wrote, Quote, underwater from 2 to 12 inches, heavy cypress swamps dotted with small islands of dry spots, of cabbage tree and pine, where here and there a large dry hummock or pine ridge, or long pine ridge. So basically, once again, they're describing the local area, which was just scrub and bush and swamp before it was uh, drained like it is today. Gustav Damocler learned about the land from an advertisement, one of many that Florida placed to let the world know that there was property available to homestead. Gustav was in his 50s, living in Clay Township, Missouri, a tall man, blind in one eye. It had been an evil eye anyway, he told people. Uh, Well-educated, fluent in German and English, and a skilled calligrapher, he had studied medicine and botany, and he had run an orphanage in Australia, where he had also mined for gold, presumably how he lost his sight. He loved adventure, so the prospects in Florida must have excited him. He chose a plot, sent in his filing fee, and then uprooted his wife and children, traveling down the Mississippi River to New Orleans, where they boarded a schooner and crossed the Gulf of Mexico, eventually arriving in Punterassa's Wharf. The land Gustav Damocler had selected was south of Punterassa, upriver from a quiet estuary, a place where his family would have peace, solitude, and acreage. Some of it was impenetrable and soggy, but there were high spots available for homesteading, and there would be more if drainage projects continued. 
Damocler's wife and children stayed in Fort Myers near Punta Rasa while he scouted his property. Fort Myers was still very much a cow town, uh, so full of cows that one resident advised walking in the middle of the street at night to, quote, avoid stumbling over sleeping cows and store doorways. The streets, end quote, the streets were unpaved trails of steep sand. Excuse me. The streets were unpaved trails of deep sand bordered by weeds. That sounds, yeah, I can, I can visualize that. Gustav and the surveyor took a rowboat to see the land. They paddled through a calm blue bay protected by a sterile island, Fort Myers, <laughs> the barrier island now known as Fort Myers Beach. And though today the beach is densely packed with motels, ice cream huts, t-shirt shops, and restaurants with rooftop bars where snowbirds watch the sunset, it's still possible to see some of what Gustav and the surveyor passed. Snowbirds, if you're not from the region, are um, visitors from up north who... Frequent our lands, provide us with capital, and terrorize us. Much of the coastal area is a preserve of uninhabited hammock, land, and mangrove along a paddling route called the Great Calusa Blue Way. Gustav and the surveyor rode past the Mantanzas Massacre Pass, where the Calusa Indians outnumbered Ponce de Leon in 1521 and shot him in the thigh with a poison arrow leading to his death later in Cuba, if I remember from the book that we read earlier, or that I read earlier, which I will read for you soon. Um, I didn't know Mant Matanzas is where Ponce de Leon received his wound, though. Fascinating. Four miles south of the pass, the two men came to a white mound where the Calusas had lived, an island of shells rising above the mangroves, 30 feet tall at the highest point, and thought to have been the Calusas' ceremonial center more than 2,000 years before. As they discarded their oyster shells, fish, and animal bones, pottery, and other waste into kitchen middens, the mound grew, and they shaped it with water quartz and ridges. After the Calusas were gone, the island provided protection for pirates who left behind gold beads, coins, crockery, and cannonballs. The island, Mount Key, marked the mouth of the river that Gustav and the surveyor were watching for. It was easy to miss because where the river meets the bay is a delta, where shallow water spreads into the estuary through thick vegetation. The men turned the boat, paddled through mangroves, and emerged onto a waterway about 80 feet wide. They rode upstream, along and against, excuse me, against the slow current, past sable palms and pines, and beneath oaks bearded with moss. The river narrowed, and on the banks, alligators sunned themselves, sleeping with their jaws open, ready for prey. Gustav and the surveyor made their way around, over and under fallen trees, blocking the river until they came to a natural landing at a log bridge that crossed the water. They grounded the boat and climbed into a high clearing. There is a romantic version of this arrival passed down by the Crescents. In their story, Gustav was alone, aimlessly looking, apparently not having planned ahead. He came upon this land where he rested and enjoyed a meager lunch. Here at high noon, a Crescent biographer wrote, all was quiet. A light breeze played through the trees and palms, and nature's creatures sought the cool shadows. End quote. Gustav took a note of the rich soil, the thickets of palmetto and scrub oak, and he, was, he wondered whether this could be the place his family would settle. Quote, As he pondered, he was suddenly startled to hear a voice saying, Take and dress until the Lord comes. End quote. 
He looked around but couldn't find the voice. The breeze stopped. And re-quoting the text, Here in the deep shadows all was utter silence, and he, awed and trembling, knew that there was the land that he had so long sought. End quote. The no-nonsense and more likely version was written by Gustav's son, Elwin. Excuse me, Elwin. <laughs> Although I like the name Elwin. His father and the surveyor located the land, selected a tent site, and then returned to Fort Myers and closed the deal. <laughs> yeah, that's much more exciting. I like that one better. He began with 80, hour, 80 acres and over the next few years expanded his holdings to 320, which I believe was the traditional expansion uh, of homesteading land. I believe the more time you stayed in your homesteaded land and expand its uh, services and facilities that you could expand up to 320 acres, at least in Florida. There may be some truth to the correction version as far as Gustav's awe of the, uh, awe of the land and his feeling that it had special purpose. Elwin said that when it came to religion, his father was a bit unstable and highly suggestible. He was a deeply religious person and read his Bible so frequently that neighbors thought he was a crank. <laughs> Gustav was a devotee of millennialist Charles Taze Russell, a pastor in Allegheny, Pennsylvania, who founded what is now known as Bi the Bible Student Movement, which spawned the Jehovah's Witnesses. Fantastic. So this guy was a real character. Russell preached The Second Coming of Christ that was published uh, by the widely disseminated Watchtower and Herald of Christ's Presence. Yo! The Watchtower is the lovely uh, publication produced and distributed by um, the uh, Witnesses of Jehovah. Oh... He was one of the most famous preachers of his day. Once the paperwork for the land was complete, the Damocur family set up from Fort Myers with their belongings, a stove, pots and pans, dishes and utensils, and a tent. I, I just wanted to briefly pause for a moment, and this makes me think so much of how the more you learn about the world and its intricacies and its connected scams and underlying uh, schemes and uh, cons and just people who are trying to get out there and do what they do, they're all, everything is connected. Everyone was inspired by another person. And, and truly, the word con artist does apply when you're talking about people who are truly find, finding a way to function in the world without the instruction book. They are truly piloting and creating their own path, penning their own way through the world, creating their own little schemes and scams to make a little bit of profit and not follow another path. And in some way, that's very commendable. In other ways. Well, I don't know. The Koreshans did it, right? It seemed like they were living a decent life so far, as far as we know. Though we haven't read all the research. Southwest Florida in 1882. Oh, excuse me. Once the paperwork for the land was complete, the Damocor family sent it for Fort Myers with their belongings, stove, pot, pans, dishes. They stopped for lunch at Mantanzas Pass, spent the night on Mount Key, then reached the property where they put up their tent. And a, a tarpaulin built a crude table for meals, surrounding hammocks between the trees. Gustav named his place Estero after the name of the river. And that was when the place Estero got its original name. Now, that was just... So, when the Koreshans came, the place was already called Estero, but it wasn't incorporated. Um, Southwest Florida in 1882 is one of the most beautiful and inhospitable places on Earth. From October through April, the weather is sunny and mild and escape from the harsh cold in the north. But the heat during the rest of the year can be brutal, and Damocles' land had very little shade. 
uh, mostly longleaf pine and low scrub palmetto. Yes, it's absolutely blazing in the, in the wilds around here. At dusk and dawn, especially in the summer, the air was thick with mosquitoes. The soil was sandy, acidic. Uh, acidic is a good way to describe a foul odor in the, uh, in the soil. Uh, think of uh, sandy soil dense with biodegrading uh, biological material and the rotting smell that that uh, gives off. Not to mention the fact that you're not going to uh, grow anything in it, really. Um, and lack nutrients. There you go. And beneath it uh, were a lands- uh, limestone and clay. But Florida uh, enchanted four-year-old Elwin, Elvin, as his father pronounced it, Elvin. So that's what I'm going to call him now. While his father and oldest brother worked, Elvin and his sisters played and wandered, seeing panthers, bobcats, and bears, and hearing bullfrogs, whooping cranes, hoot owls, eagles, and lowing cows. The alligators were so plentiful that they swarmed the river, making bathing difficult until Gustav rechanneled the water to create a safe pool. At dusk, the Damoclers built smoky fires to keep the insects away. Gustav planned to cultivate bees and silkworms and to grow mulberry trees for the silkworms to feed on. The bees were more successful than the silkworms, but selling the honey was tough, as the closest railroad for getting it to market was very far away. He experimented with plants that would grow in sandy soil, and he planted pineapples, but these were ruined by fires set by cattlemen who brought their herds south and burned large swaths of the new land for grazing. Those Florida crackers. Destroying his pineapples. What wasn't burned was trampled by the cows, which pulled the pineapple sprouts from the ground and destroyed Gustav's fences. It was such a problem that Gustav sailed 125 miles to Key West, the county seat, to see what could be done. Nothing, the commissioners told him. Cattlemen were boss. Gustav wrote Florida's governor, who referred him back to Key West. (laughs) So a lot of his time was taken up with fence building and repair. The Damoclers wanted... Uh, the Damoclers planted cow peas and sweet potatoes. They had plenty of oysters, clams, crabs, and fish to eat, as well as gigantic turtles. A loggerhead could weigh more than 350 pounds. In those cruel, primitive days, Elvin wrote, we tied a rope to the inside of its flipper and made the turtle carry one of us to its slaughtering place. Wow. What? All right, Elvine. According to Elvine, criminals had hid in the area, including one man who kept sun-bleached human skeletons in his backyard to keep people away. This is in Southwest Florida. I just want... Um, can we do a little research to figure out that story? Where's Elvine's journal, and where can we get this information? <laughs> to protect themselves, the Damoclers had rifles and shotguns, a Colt revolver, and a large Cuban bloodhound. Within two years, Alma Demicler gave birth to a baby boy, whom they named Astero after the place. She died two weeks later after complications from childbirth, leaving Gustav with an infant and three children to care for by himself. Elvian's older brother had left for reasons that aren't known, and the family struggled. Gustav had spent $1,600, although we can imagine living with a, 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 a real... Uh, a religious zealot on a tear of his very own could probably be very difficult. What a disaster that must have been. And the family struggled. Gustav had spent $1,600 to settle, clear, and plant what he needed money, 
uh, and he needed money. Baby food was especially hard to come by, Elwin remembered, and it was expensive, requiring many trips to Punta Rasa, the nearest civilized place. Elwin, at age six, became the oldest child. He learned to cook and sew and take care of the baby and shoot a gun so he could protect the family during Gustav's trips to Punta Rasa, which took nine days. Whoa. Elwin said because his father wasn't a sailor in those days and didn't know how to tack against the wind. I want to say that that's, by the way, that's nine days to go like 40 miles by water in a sailing boat. I, I, I just... That's 40 miles, miles is... That's a conservatively long estimate. I'm giving him some credit. Uh, Elwin was uncannily responsible for a six-year-old, and his memoir, which he wrote at age 89, is the only record of what their lives were like. I have to track that down and read it. When a stranger appeared in Estero, the Damoclers welcomed him. He took care of the children while Gustav was in Punta Rasa, cooking their meals and keeping them entertained, and he bought 20 acres from Gustav for $200, money they desperately needed. He bought a stilt house, high enough that bears, raccoons, and bobcats would leave him alone. Elwin often walked the half mile to the stranger's place to watch his progress. Nearly everything the man used came from his property. Four trees, evenly spaced, served as the corner supports. The corner supports. And cypress trees provided the wood for the frame, walls, floor joists, and rafters. He even created a smooth floor by trimming the stems of palm trees and nailing them down flat side up. Brilliant. The Damilkers were happy to have such an inventive and caring neighbor until Elvine realized he had a dastardly plan. Mr. X, as Elvine called him in the memoir, had a lady friend that he encouraged Gustav to marry. Mr. X pressed Gustav to do this, and he hesitated. Then, mysteriously, the Damocler baby, Estero, fell ill. Soon after, the rest of the children got sick, and a doctor couldn't determine what was wrong. Elwin and his father believed Mr. X had poisoned them with white lead. The baby died. Then one of the daughters died. And then the other daughter. Elwin was a walking skeleton, but he was determined to live so that Mr. X could not carry out his plan. Elwin was discovered. Elvin was convinced that once his father married the lady, Mr. X would kill Elwin and Gustav so that he could take the Damocler's land. It was Elwin, according to Elwin's memoir who saved the day. When it became evident that I would live, he wrote, Mr. X disappeared, and apparently Gustav and Elwin reclaimed his 20 acres. Gustav and Elwin, now the only ones left, cultivated vegetable gardens and orchards of pomegranates, guava, lime, lemon, lime, orange, and sapodilla. As the years passed, the trees grew until the clearing around the, their cabin was nearly hidden by mango and citrus trees. Meanwhile, Estera was growing. The land was in such high demand that a company formed in Key West to sell Estero property. More homesteaders moved in. It seemed possible that a town would form, and if it did, Gustav's land would be at the center of it. His half-square mile of property on the river lay uh, next to the sand trail that ran between Naples and Fort Myers. The trail wasn't passable. It was a path from the Calusa days, but it was likely to be improved one day, which would make Gustav's land valuable. The trail is now U.S. Highway 41, which connects Miami to Tampa and, constant, and continues all the way to Michigan. And I may add that uh, it is also known locally as the Tamiami Trail, connecting Tampa to Miami. 
The migration south had begun. It also makes you think so much of the historic nature of roads and their, and their um, places. Um, I'll read from another book next time that'll, that'll give a little more context of uh, Cape Coral's position. The migration south had begun. Henry Plant bought foreclosed land and extended his railroad to Tampa. Resorts sprang up. Civil War veterans who had fought in Florida remembered the pleasant weather and came back to live. In the 1880s, Florida's population grew more than 100 uh, to one, more than 100,000 people. Railroads and development made it easier to vacation and settle in southwest Florida. Thomas Edison had built a winter home in Fort Myers. Of course, that's historic. There's entire books about that. And of course, famously, he, along with Henry Ford and Harvey Firestone, would, besides, besides being some um, mixed characters, uh, would develop their um, finalized rubber recipe down here in Fort Myers, which you can go and visit their museum and laboratory in the historic downtown here. By the 1890s, the port of Punta Rasa was pleasant and civilized. Uh, nothing like the end of the world where Gustav had landed with his family. The cattle-based economy had given way to sport fishing, which meant fewer cowboys and more millionaires. And I will continue uh, at a later date, because it is such a fascinating story. And, uh, yes, please... Um, Join us again, uh, probably on Monday. Thank you very much for listening to the program. Please donate to your local food bank. I love it. No. Nope. We're doing it. Here it is. Uh, bad out of hell. Bad out of hell. Uh, this one right here. Here we go. This is it. We're gonna learn the most famous meatloaf song. This is for everyone.
Oh, wow.